There were lots of things I wanted as a young child, but only one thing that I really wanted. It was a lightsaber. I mean, yeah, there are lots of other great things that you could have, but a lightsaber? That would have been awesome. And in my mind, I knew what I would do with my lightsaber. I would, I would keep it. I would hold on to it. I would never show it to anybody. I would never let them touch it. It would be my lightsaber. I would have it with me always. I would sleep with it. I would take it to school with me. I would even find a way to bring it to church with me. This was my lightsaber. I mean, after all, a true Jedi can never be separated from his lightsaber. And so in my mind, that whole idea about this fabulous light sword that could defeat anything, that just, that played large in my mind. And so I always was thinking, man, if I could just have a real lightsaber, everything else in life would pale if just that could happen. Now, perhaps it's my love of lightsabers or dream of having my very own lightsaber that causes me when I watch the Star Wars movies to get to a scene that absolutely drives me up the wall. I simply can't stand it. Now, it has nothing to do with Ewoks or Jar Jar Binks or the fact that there's two Death Stars. I mean, really, two Death Stars? Couldn't we have come up with a different idea? Now, it has nothing to do with any of that. It's a scene near the end of Return of the Jedi, and every time I watch it, I want to scream out, no, don't do that. Now, I'm going to show you just a bit of the clip this morning, but hold on. Because of the family service, the, the real clip that I wanted to show you is probably a bit frightening, so we had to cut it down. So let me set the scene for you. The clip we have here is not frightening, I don't believe. Uh, what it is, is that there is a final battle scene between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. And Luke Skywalker defeats Darth Vader. And the way we sort of know he defeats him is, is that he cuts off his mechanical hand, just like Luke had had his hand cut off by Darth Vader. And there's this sort of like equality thing. And this whole battle is taking place under the watchful gaze of the emperor, who is the evil satanic figure uh, in the trilogies. Pure evil, nothing good about him whatsoever. And he's watching Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker fight it out. And we get to this scene that right after Luke defeats Vader, and I want you to watch what Luke Skywalker does with his lightsaber. Now... The thing that just drives me up the wall, he throws his lightsaber away. I thought the very first rule of being a Jedi was never, ever, ever throw away your lightsaber. I mean, what is Luke Skywalker thinking? I mean, here he is facing his ultimate enemy and the one thing that could actually protect him. The one thing that he could actually use to drive the emperor away, he tosses away. Now, look, there's a lot of Star Wars aficionados who are going to say, no, no, he was sacrificing himself. No, no, look, that's not how this works. Okay, the emperor is not, what does he think is going to happen? He tells the emperor that he's a Jedi and the emperor is going to be like, okay, fine, I give up, you win. No, that's not what happens. The emperor tries to kill him. Now, yes, I get that it has a happy ending and all of that kind of stuff. 
But I'm thinking to myself, you have something in your possession that we learned from other Star Wars movies could protect you from what the emperor is about to do to you. And you could use this. You don't have to give up your life, Luke. You could actually use this to kill the emperor. Or, if nothing else, just leave. <laughs> it will protect you. But yet he throws it away. And every time I see it, I visibly, it frustrates me. Now, perhaps the reason it's so frustrating is because in many ways this actually reminds me of how we sometimes act as Christians. God has given us a sword. We've been talking about it this morning, the sword of the Spirit. But sometimes in my mind I visualize us as Christians facing our greatest enemy, which is Satan, who is pure evil. He's not redeemable like the Vader character. The emperor is pure evil and he represents Satan. As Christians, I visualize us facing Satan and saying to him, I am a Christian. And with that, we simply toss aside the sword that God has given us to protect us as if Satan is going to hear that declaration and go, oh, you're a Christian, I give up. I quit. No, no, no. The end of the movie, what the emperor says to Luke is, is okay, look, if you're not going to turn to the dark side, I'm going to kill you. That's exactly how Satan feels about us. If you're not going to serve me, I'm going to try to kill you. There's nothing good about Satan whatsoever. And the thing is, is that at that moment, we were holding in our hands something that could help us, something that could protect us. But too many of us as Christians simply toss it aside and think that the declaration that we are Christians, that somehow that is going to exempt us from what the evil one wants to do to us. That's not the case. Satan very much has the mindset, if you will not turn and serve me, I will destroy you. But fortunately, as Christians, we have not been left swordless. We have been given a weapon which can help protect us and can be useful for this situation. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Ephesians 6. You don't have to hold the spine in the air or anything like that. Just turn. <laughs> Just turn. Pastor Joel never mentioned anything about tabs. I mean, come on, in the church I went to, if you had tabs in your Bible, certainly you were going to win. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. <laughs> Ephesians 6, page 830. Ephesians 6, page 830 in the Bibles the church provides. We've been talking this summer about spiritual warfare. This is our last week in the series on spiritual warfare. And in reality, our last week in the book of Ephesians. We're drawing to a close here. Lord willing, we'll be starting First and Second Samuel. Uh, beginning next week. But here we are in the close of Ephesians and we're closing out thinking about spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare simply defined is the recognition that every single Christian, every single moment of every single day is in a conflict with the evil one. That Satan and his hordes of darkness want to destroy us and every aspect of our life is affected by the fact that we are constantly in a battle. We've been looking together this summer at the armor God has given us 
so that we can be successful and stand in the midst of this battle. We've looked together at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel boots, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And this morning we look in chapter 6, the second half of verse 17, and we see the final piece of weaponry that God has entrusted to us. Second half of verse 17. Oh, we can read the whole verse. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. We have up here a replica of a Roman sword. This is pretty cool. (laughs) Kids, if you want to come see this afterwards, you can. It's not sharp. But you can only do it if you've got a parent or an adult with you. But I'd encourage you, come see it. It's pretty sweet. It's sort of the best, uh, best piece of the weaponry that we have up here. This is a replica of a Roman sword, what we would expect Paul to be thinking about when he has this in mind, uh, when he mentions the sword of the Spirit. This would be a sword that he would be thinking of. Now, when he talks about the sword of the Spirit... Suddenly the discussion of the armor of God takes a move in a slightly different direction. Up until this point, everything that has been described has been described to protect us from Satan's attacks. Helmet, shield, breastplate. But now with the sword we move in a slightly different direction. It is true that a sword can be defensive, but a sword is not primarily a defensive weapon. The sword is primarily an offensive weapon. Now the point is not that with the sword of the Spirit you can kill Satan. But the point is with the sword of the Spirit you can drive him back. That it's not simply a matter of being dressed in the armor of God so that we can continue to absorb blow after blow as Satan comes after us time and time again. No, God says, no, there is a weapon that you have been given that has the ability to drive him back. After all, If you've ever come under spiritual attack, you know that if all you do is simply stand there and absorb shot after shot after shot, at some point it wears you down. At some point it wears you out. God says, but I have given you the sword of the Spirit. It doesn't kill Satan. He can't be killed that way. But it can drive him back. Now it's called the sword of of the Spirit. In this way, it's different than the shield of faith or the breastplate of righteousness or the helmet of salvation. In all of those cases, faith is the shield, righteousness is the breastplate, salvation is the helmet. But when it comes to the sword of the Spirit, the sword is not the Spirit. Paul's going to tell us in just a moment what the sword is. He has to add another phrase. But he calls it the sword of the Spirit because what he's saying is is that the sword 
is under the Spirit's control. It's empowered by the Spirit. Namely, that the Spirit gives the sword its edge. The Spirit is the one that allows us that when we wield the sword under the Spirit's influence and power, then it's effective. Then the sword has the ability to do what it is that God gave it to us to do. So it's the sword that is empowered by the Spirit of God. And what is that sword? It says at the end of verse 17, the sword is the Word of God. Now that primarily refers to the Bible, but the word that Paul uses for word normally refers to the spoken word. It's normally used to refer to the audible spoken word. And so while it's true that the Bible itself is the word of God, it seems that Paul has in mind more specifically the spoken word of God. After all, the point is Satan cannot read our minds. He's not God. And so for you and I to simply meditate on the scriptures, that's a blessing and that's good, but that's not actually using the sword of the spirit. In reality, that's more associated with the belt of truth. That as you meditate on the truth of God's word, it is a protection for you. It's absolutely wonderful. It's quite good and very important. But it's not really the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit has something to do with the spoken Word of God. There have been many occasions where I have sat in my office or at another place with somebody who was under demonic influence. Somehow Satan was oppressing them. There was some form of demonic activity that was available. Now, In many of those cases, as this person has been talking, I've been interacting with them, I've thought in my mind about scriptural passages that might be relevant to the situation. But you know what I found is that it doesn't matter how many passages I think about silently to myself, that has no effect whatsoever on the person I'm talking to. But the moment you begin to say them out loud, there will be an effect. This is one of the ways you can recognize if somebody is under more oppressive forms of demonic activity is that when you speak the word of God to them, there will be some kind of physical or emotional response. Something will happen, either positive or negative. But it's interesting to me that while I simply think those verses in my head, nothing happens. But when you begin to say them aloud, Something different happens. That's because in our minds, it's the belt of truth. When we say them, it becomes the sword of the Spirit. This is why, although we often think of sword as going with our hand, the sword of the Spirit is more naturally associated with our mouth. This is why in Revelation 1.16, for example... It says of Jesus, in his right hand he had several seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp 
double-edged sword. Throughout the scriptures, in fact, there are a number of references, I think I counted 18, where the sword is coming out of someone's mouth. And that's this idea, is that the word of God, the spoken word of God, is the sword of the Spirit. Now the question is, how do we use the sword of the Spirit to drive Satan back? I mean, this is a great gift that God has given to us. That instead of simply absorbing blow after blow, we have the ability to drive him back. The question is, well, how do you do it? Well, let me give you three scenarios in which we can use the sword of the Spirit, the spoken word of God, to drive Satan away. The first one, and for these I thought we could turn in our Bible since we're talking about the Word of God. Normally we just put the passages on the screen, but today let's turn to them. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 4. So turn over to Matthew 4. Matthew chapter 4, it's page 800, or 683. Matthew 4. The first scenario in which we can make use of the sword of the Spirit to drive Satan away is when Satan is attacking us. When we feel the assault of Satan against us. And here the example in Matthew 4 is of the temptation of Jesus. Jesus comes under attack from Satan. It doesn't mean that there were no other times in which Jesus was tempted. It means that at this moment, the attack of Satan was unique. That he was coming after Jesus in a very strong way. And you and I experience that as well. Yes, we may be tempted on a regular basis. But there are certain times when you can sort of feel the attack of the evil one. That he's coming after you, guns blazing, trying to get you to fall. Well, in this battle, Jesus three times quotes Scripture aloud. Look at the last one. It's verse 10. The first two times he simply quotes the passage. The third time in verse 10 it says, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now, sometimes you can read that passage and think, Oh, well, Satan just kind of got tired. No, the idea is is that as they're going back and forth, you can almost imagine or visualize in your mind this is a sword fight between the two of them and Jesus is wielding the sword of the Spirit and in the last blow he says to him, get lost, Satan, leave me alone and quotes Scripture to him and Satan is driven away. Now it's important to note, Satan doesn't leave the first time Jesus quotes Scripture. Instead, there is this back and forth. It's also important to note that it's not like Satan left Jesus alone for the rest of his life. He does come back. But the point is, is just like Jesus uses the spoken word of God to drive Satan back when he's attacking him, so too you and I, when Satan comes after us with accusations, 
or temptations or bombards us with anxieties and worries. When you feel that sort of attack in a special way, the example of Jesus is it is the spoken word of God that somehow speaking aloud the word of God in that situation is powerful and effective. Now you may think, but I'm in the room by myself. Who's, who's going to be there to hear what I have to say? Trust me. There are people that are there that do hear what you are saying And what Ephesians 6 is telling us is that you are wielding the sword of the Spirit and it is effective. It does work to drive Satan back. So that's the first scenario in which we use the sword of the Spirit when our enemy is present and attacking us to push him away. The second example, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians four, that's page eight hundred and eighteen. The first scenario is when Satan is attacking us. The second time in which the sword of the Spirit is powerfully effective for driving him back is when he is blinding the minds of unbelievers. For those friends and family members that we know who seem to be deceived by Satan and unable to see the truth of who Jesus is, that no matter how often or how well you explain to them about Christianity and about God, that for whatever reason they're unable to see. Well, Paul discusses that in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the what? The word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's actually a way of referring to Satan, That's Satan that Paul's talking about there. Has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. Is that unbelievers are blinded by Satan. That he's present, deceiving them, causing them to be unable to see. But Paul says, look, what works to help people? Yes, not everybody comes to faith. But what does cause people is the gospel, the word of truth presented. Well, what's happening is is that when you speak the gospel to people, when you share with them the word of truth, you are wielding the sword of the Spirit and driving Satan back so that unbelievers can see. Because while he's present, they're not going to be able to see. They're not going to be able to understand. But it is the word of truth spoken to them that begins to drive Satan back. This is why the idea that we can somehow share the gospel without using words doesn't make any sense. 
Yes, we do good things. Yes, our lives are a testimony to the gospel. Yes, the character that we have can point people to the gospel. But until you actually sit down and say, Jesus is Lord, he died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, until you actually say that, no one can become a Christian. Because it is the spoken word of God or the communicated word of God that actually drives back Satan and allows those who are not believers to be able to see. This is why apologetics, the arguments that we give for our faith, never save anybody. They're good and they're useful and they're helpful for Christians. But to sit down with somebody who's not a believer and go through all the different kinds of manuscripts we have for the New Testament or give scientific evidence why there must have been a universal flood, that's all well and good, but it's not going to save anybody because it's not the sword of the Spirit. (laughs) That if Satan is deceiving them and blinding their eyes, all the scientific or rational arguments are not going to drive him away. What does drive him back? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why if you have somebody who's a non-Christian, it's wonderful to give them a Bible and tell them to read it for themselves, but it's better to offer to sit down with them and read it together and to explain it to them. After all, if you had a friend who was being pounced on by a lion, yes, it's helpful to give them a sword, But it's better to use the sword to drive away the lion. Same thing is true is that, yes, you can give somebody God's word and the spirit can use that. The spirit can use the truth of God's word simply being read by a non-believer to bring them to faith. But it's better when you and I sit down with that friend and said, can we read this together? Can I try to explain it to you? What we're doing at that point is we're wielding the sword of the spirit. This is why it's so powerful to bring somebody to church who's not a believer is because right now we are wielding the sword of the spirit and if Satan is present deceiving the minds of certain people here when it is said that Jesus is Lord that he died for our sins and was raised from the dead for our salvation that that spoken word of God can have the effect of driving him back so that eyes can see and people can be saved so this is the second scenario in which we are to wield the sword of the spirit is when we're interacting with a non-believer who seems to be deceived and blinded by the evil one. There is still hope in that situation. It may seem hopeless, but God says, I've given you a sword, a sword that the enemy must retreat in the face of. There's a third scenario in which we are to wield the sword of the spirit in our fight against the evil one. For this, turn over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, near the end of the Bible, page 868. Revelation chapter 2. Not only do we use the sword of the Spirit when Satan attacks us, or when we see him blinding the minds of unbelievers, but also we wield the sword of the Spirit when we see that Satan has taken another Christian captive to do his will. Look in verse number 12, Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, 
These are the words of him, we're talking of Jesus, these are the words of Jesus who has the sharp double-edged sword. He's the one who's got the sword. I know where you live, Jesus says. Where do they live? Where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's what's going on in the city of Pergamum. This was a satanic stronghold that because of whatever was going on in that city, cultic activity, the power of the Roman Empire, whatever's going on in that city, that city was known as being a place where the forces of evil and of darkness were strongly present. In the middle of that city, there was a church. And Jesus is very proud of this church because in the middle of this satanic region and realm, they were standing strong for the gospel and had not lost their faith. But Jesus says, in the middle of your church, there are a few Christians, real genuine believers, who because of the location in the city of Pergamum have been overly influenced by satanic forces. As a result, they had fallen prey to the sin of greed. That's the Balaam and Balak reference. The idea that they were selling, that Balaam was willing to sell blessings for money. And Jesus says, we need to deal with this. These are genuine believers who have been taken captive by Satan's lies. How do you deal with it? Well, you go through the scriptural story of Balaam and Balak. It's the word of God that's being used to set them free. Jesus says, tell them what they're doing is in line with what's going on in the Old Testament. Use the word of God to fight Satan away. He says, or else I will come and do it myself. Either way, the word that comes out of Jesus' mouth, either through us or from him personally, this is the means of fighting Satan back when he's taken captive, those who are believers in Christ. This is why Proverbs says, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. And here the picture is perhaps somebody on the battlefield who's been shot with one of Satan's arrows. The kind thing to do is to take the sword of the spirit and to dig that arrow out. It's going to hurt. But this is the way we dig Satan out of the lives. All of us can come to the point where we fall under his power and his influence, but it is the sword of the spirit wielded in the hand of a friend who comes to us. You know, the word of God is not just good for doctrine and training in righteousness, but also for correction and rebuke. And nobody likes correction and nobody likes to be rebuked. But when a friend takes the sword of the spirit in love and begins to dig Satan out of our lives, it does hurt. But this is the only hope for getting him out. 
All the rest of the armor is defensive. But once he's inside, once he's penetrated a breastplate of righteousness because we lowered it, once he's gotten into our head because we took off our helmet of salvation, the way we dig him out is the sword of the Spirit. And the good news is, is that if you know a Christian brother or sister who has fallen prey to Satan's temptations and his attacks and his accusations, and it seems that Satan has so ingrained himself into that person's life that it looks absolutely hopeless, that he's into the very marrow and bones of who they are. The good news is, is that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it can pierce and divide all the way into the center of who we are, dividing even between our souls and our spirits in order to dig Satan out. And the good news is, is no matter where Satan is, he must yield to a sword that is guided by the Spirit of God. At the end of the day, we've not simply been given defensive weapons and told to stand. We have been given the sword of the Spirit which, which, with which we can drive back the evil. And we don't kill him, but we do drive him back, not forever. That we wait for Christ to return and do himself. But we can cause him to flee. So what are we to do with this teaching? Well, I'm afraid too many of us, like Luke Skywalker, have a naive overconfidence that because we're Christians, we're safe. And we stand in front of our enemy and say, I am a Christian, you've failed. And we take the sword of the Spirit and we toss it aside. We leave it collecting dust on the shelves. It's an unused app on our smartphone. For many of us, we could tell you the stock price of the company that we work for right now. We could give you the value of our 401k, but we couldn't quote a single verse that Jesus has to say about greed or money from the Bible. Some of us here could tell you the name of every character on the television show Bones, but we don't know anything about what the Bible has to say about anxiety or about worry. Some of us think that we've sat down with our kids and we had to talk with them about sexual relationships and those kinds of things when they were 10 years old and we think, well, I had to talk with them when they're 10, they'll be safe for the rest of their life without realizing, look, if it's Satan that's coming after them, the only thing that's going to drive him back is regular, repeated interactions with the Word of God and what it has to say about it. Some conversation with a 10-year-old's not going to protect him. It's the Word of God and someone being equipped to wield that sword. You know, for some of our small groups, we've read every single book you could possibly read on Christian living, but never actually read the Bible together. Some of us, like Luke Skywalker, seem to have thrown away the one thing that can drive our enemy back, the one thing that can protect us. And we think, I'm a Christian, what can he do to me? And the point is, the truth is, he can do a lot. And it can be very, very painful, even life-threatening. Not eternal life-threatening, but life-threatening. But for a Jedi, he practices with his lightsaber until it is basically an extension of his arm. For a Christian, we memorize the Word of God. 
We meditate on the Word of God. We discuss the Word of God. We listen to the Word of God preached. We read the Word of God. We engage with the Word of God. We study the Word of God until it is like an extension of our own arms so that whenever situation we get in, whenever the evil one shows up against us, whether he's attacking us personally or blinding the minds of an unbeliever or involved in the life of a Christian, we are armed and equipped to drive him back. As I went through this study this week, I thought, how encouraging is this? We actually have a weapon that he must flee in the face of. That the word of God, wielded under the power of the spirit, there's nothing that Satan can do against it. Let's pray together. Lord, for many of us as Young children dreamed of powerful weapons like lightsabers and things like that, forgetting that you had given us a weapon far, far, far more powerful. Lord, that our minds have been distracted to all sorts of other things and we have tossed aside the very word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that this morning you would use your word to bring conviction and encouragement to us. Lord, for those who are here who are feeling that there's nothing they can do to drive Satan back, Lord, would you teach them and show them the power of your word? For those who see an unbelieving friend or family member and have given up hope because every argument they've given them seems to fall on deaf ears, God, would you show them that it's the sword of the spirit that can drive back Satan? For those here who have a family or loved one or a small group member or whatever, or perhaps they themselves seem to be under Satan's power and control. Lord, would you cause us not to lose hope, but to realize that there is no situation in which your word wielded in love under the control of the Spirit cannot be effective. God, thank you for this great and mighty gift. What can we say, Lord? You have given us your very word. We thank you for it. Amen.